Thank you for scrolling all the way back to my first episode of Written in Blood History. This is not the original opening to this episode, as you may gather. I decided to go back and re-record it because so much has changed since this episode was published. The big things are, I changed the name of the podcast from Thicker Than Blood to Written in Blood History. I've also signed up with the Evergreen Podcast Network, and I'm happy to be included in their history section. I also now have a Patreon page, so that you can donate to help support the show. And you can find that at patreon.com slash writteninbloodhistory. This episode is a retelling of the life of an ancestor of mine who I discovered whilst doing genealogy research. His life met a sudden and quite terrifying end. An end that, if the contemporary accounts are to be believed, was a result of witchcraft. So take a listen and learn a little history around the legal charges of witchcraft in Puritan America in the spooky story of my ancestor, Philip Smith and the Half-Hanged Witch of Hadley. What does it take for you to believe a story? Especially if the story is a little unbelievable. I think I'm the type of person who wants to see the evidence. Show me the facts and I'll consider all sides. But what if there isn't any tangible evidence? What if all you have are witnesses? So you have five people or ten people. They're all telling the same story. They're all telling you the same thing, and they're people you know and trust, and they swear they all saw the same incredible event with their own eyes. But what they saw is something that defines logic. What then? And even with these facts and evidence in front of you, and you put it together and try and figure out what happened, how do we know we're not seeing the facts in a way that we want to see them, in a conclusion that would fit our worldview? You know, how do we know we're not putting the dots together in accordance with our prejudices? I bring this up because the subject of this podcast, uh, by contemporaneous accounts, was murdered. But the evidence of his murder isn't physical. It couldn't be submitted in a little Ziploc bag and brought into a laboratory and tested for fingerprints. There was a time when other forms of evidence could be admissible in court, a type of evidence called spectral. Spectral evidence, corroborated by witness testimony usually. Basically, spectral evidence meant visions and dreams and feelings and out-of-body experiences and intangible and unprovable things. And yet, in the 17th century Puritan courts, this type of evidence was critical in witch trials. A defendant's very life usually hung, pun intended, on this type of evidence. My ancestor, Philip Smith of Hadley, Massachusetts, was an alleged victim of one of these witches. The Reverend Cotton Mather, who we'll come back to later, wrote of his death in his Magnalia Christi Americana, and he said, quote, Mr. Philip Smith, aged about 50 years, a son of an eminently virtuous parents, a deacon of a church in Hadley, a member of the general court, a justice in the county court, a select man for the affairs of the town, a lieutenant of the troop, and which crowns all, a man for devotion, sanctity, gravity, and all that was honest, exceedingly exemplary. Such a man was in the winter of the year 1684, murdered with a hideous witchcraft that filled all those parts of New England with astonishment. End quote. So Cotton Mather leaves no doubt in his mind about the existence of witchcraft, but our modern minds aren't so easily swayed, right? We're all aware of Wicca and other pagan-style spiritualists, but the idea that anyone can just turn into a black cat and attack you in your sleep isn't really given serious thought by most people. 
So we need to understand the context of Hadley and to, to be able to get a proper sense for the mood, we have to understand the time and the superstitions of the Puritans. Hadley was founded by a group of Puritan settlers who had some sort of falling out, a doctrinal falling out with the Puritan churches, uh, not that far away in Hartford and Wethersfield, Connecticut. And even though witch trials in Europe had largely subsided by this time, American Puritans notoriously still believed with fervor that there were witches and that they did actively commune with the devil and that they afflicted pious members of the community. One thing I find fascinating with these beliefs is their seamless integration with the legal apparatus of the time. An accused witch, in theory, had to be charged and found guilty by a jury or judge. And the critical crime wasn't simply the act of practicing witchcraft. It was the crime of maleficium, which is performing witchcraft to cause harm. But spectral evidence had to be brought to prove this. And even though it's intangible, it was still allowed to prove maleficium. It's a bizarre blend of paranormal and legal systems. Surprisingly, for me at least, I, I think it's surprising that even with that being the, the, the way charges were brought against witches, less than half of those who were charged were actually found guilty. In the book Witch Hunting in the 17th Century New England by David D. Hall, he describes how showing maleficium could work and how it could be brought about through spectral evidence. Quote, In folk tradition, witches were old women, often widowed and ugly. They were sharp-tongued and difficult to get along with, though some hid their malice behind fair appearance, and they possessed familiar spirits who took the form of animals and did their bidding. Descriptions of these spirits leave no doubt that they were viewed as demons in disguise. In a 1566 trial, the witch's cat was even named Satan. The accused woman's daughter was visited by a black dog who offered to harm the daughter's enemy but demanded her body and soul, and so upon request and fear together, she gave him her body and soul. Legally, courts required evidence of maleficium to convict, so statute law had little weight to diabolical pacts, but interactions with demons and the diabolical pact were a part of the English stereotype of the witch. End quote. So as superstitious as all that sounds, Hadley, Massachusetts stands out even amongst this crowd in the 17th century. They had their own local legends that were pretty unique. During Philip Smith's time, there was an event in Hadley that quickly spun into sort of a story of God's direct intervention in the salvation of the town. And it became the legend known as the Angel of Hadley. The legend goes that during a war with the Native Americans known as King Philip's War, Hadley, Massachusetts was attacked. And if you could, I don't know, kind of put yourself in the moment of what that might look like. You live in a fledgling village. It's attacked by people who scare the crap out of you. They're viewed as barbaric. They're probably in league with the devil. They surprise you from the darkness of the woods. The All the women and the children of the town are probably huddled helplessly in their homes, knowing full well that they're going to be scalped or burned alive or worse. The men supposedly were completely unable to muster any semblance of a coordinated defense. Um, it's just complete pandemonium. And it looks like Hadley is about to be wiped out of existence. When out of nowhere appears an old man who is described as having a formidable bearing and tall stature. He has a long white beard and he wields an ancient sword. And by sheer force of will, he rallies the men of the village into an offensive attack and he repels the Native Americans. And then that stranger, that, that old man, he disappears, never to be heard from again. So it's like Gandalf appeared in Hadley in the nick of time. 
It's the craziest story. But this legend, like many legends, most legends probably, has some root in historical fact. Historians seem to think that it's likely that the old man was a known fugitive from England named General Goff. And General Goff was wanted for his part in the murder of King Charles I. He was beheaded. He, among other Puritan leaders, who rose up against the king, took refuge in the colonies. And it seems possible that this angelic figure may have been General Goff, who briefly came out of hiding to save his town. The primary source for the legend, as it came to be told, comes from a prominent Puritan named Increase Mather, the father of Reverend Cotton Mather, who chronicled the death of my ancestor, Philip. He was thought to be friendly with Goff and aware of his hideaway location, and the prevailing theory is that the legend of the Angel of Hadley was promulgated to conceal the identity and the whereabouts of General Goff, but nonetheless, people believed it. So you have this town, Hadley, Massachusetts. The inhabitants are characteristically superstitious, especially for the time. You have legends being circulated about an angelic being who just saved the town. And keep in mind, we're still about a decade prior to the Salem Witch Trials, so there isn't necessarily widespread panic about witchcraft yet in New England, but we're getting there. And in this setting, it's kind of kindled for witchcraft mania to take hold, and all it needs is a spark. So now now we're going to introduce a ne'er-do-well in Hadley, a person who for lack of a better term, is a prime target for accusations of witchcraft. Her name is Mary Webster. Not much is known about Mary's history prior to her marriage to her husband, William Webster. We do know this marriage should have secured a certain amount of prominence and prestige in Hadley, but it didn't. You see, William, her husband, was the son of the former governor of Connecticut, as well as the founder and magistrate of Hadley. And when his father died, he left certain land holdings to William. But something happened to his inheritance. Something that's been obscured by the fog of history. We don't know. All we know is the ownership of his holdings transferred to another person in Hadley. So, for whatever reason, the Websters were bereft of any wealth, which you could imagine is not an easy situation to be in in the 17th century. There's no Medicare, no Social Security safety net in those times. The poor were completely dependent on the charity of the town. Some researchers theorize that Mary Webster's abrasive personality exasperated her situation. One of them writes, quote, Mary Webster's temper, which was not the most placid, was not improved by poverty and neglect, and she used harsh words when offended, end quote. Another historian says, quote, Poverty is discouraging and it is intimated that it did not improve the temper of Mary Webster, and it is also intimated that she became spiteful and looked upon all those about her as enemies and acted accordingly, End quote. And so with Mary Webster, she's sort of the rub of the story. Making enemies during a period of time where you have witches and spectral evidence, that's a dangerous game to play. And she is, by all accounts, poor, dependent, apparently ungrateful to her benefactors, She's rude and sharp-tongued. She's probably a bit reclusive, and it might be fair to let our imagines portray her as being a bit unkempt and dirty as well. She's also childless, as far as we know. Add a few warts and a long nose, and she's the classic caricature of a witch. As Monty Python would say, she looks like one. But this is where things get weird. This is where we begin to cross into speculative history. This is where the shadows start playing tricks on us. 
And when fear compounds fear, things tend to get dark. Author Samuel Gardner Drake compiled some of the Hadley lore in The Annals of Witchcraft in New England, where he described some of the bizarre events that witnesses began reporting surrounding Mary Webster. Quote, Cattle refused to draw as they approached her house, and horses balked and could not be driven past her door. In such cases, drivers would enter the house and beat her, or threaten to do so, and she would generally let them pass. On one occasion, she overturned a load of hay as it was about to go past, and the man in charge of it entered the house to whip her, but in the meantime, his load of hay was placed right side up by an invisible hand. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but what gets me about that last quote is if I think a witch is telepathically tossing around my horse cart like a child's toy, the last thing I'm going to do is run into her house and try and show her who's boss. But again, that's just me. Drake goes on to say, quote, At another time, by looking at a child in a cradle at a neighbor's house, she caused it to ascend to the chamber floor three successive times when no visible hands touched it. Once a hen came down somebody's chimney and was somewhat scalded in a pot which happened to be over the fire. It was found that Mary Webster was suffering from a scald about that time. End quote. What Drake is referring to here is a witch's familiar. An animal like a black cat, for instance, that might be sent out on diabolical missions at the behest of the witch. And if the familiar sustains an injury, the witch would also sustain a similar injury. Another peculiarity of a witch's familiar, one that comes up a little later, is that they feed off of the blood of the witch. And so they, they leave behind bite marks of sorts, also known as a witch's teat. So... As Mary Webster's powers begin to add up, her reputation becomes more notorious, the townspeople become more suspicious, and in an era of witches and witchcraft, who can blame them, right? And so this brings me back to my original question at the beginning of this podcast. What do you need to believe a story that somebody tells you? Show me the facts, right? When 17th century Puritan society, spectral evidence is fact, and Hadley decides they've had enough of their local witch enough carts flipping over, enough of her familiars creeping about, enough levitating children, and at long last, Mary Webster was arrested and formally charged of witchcraft. She appeared before the courthouse on March 27, 1683, and there were two judges, three associates of the court who were sort of like judges' assistants, and 13 jurors at Mary Webster's trial. One of those associates was my ancestor, Philip Smith. The records are scant at the trial, but... What we do know is that the court deemed the scope of the crime to be beyond its authority. So Mary Webster's case was sent to a higher court in Boston and was indicted with the following charge. Quote, For that she, not having the fear of God before her eyes, and being instigated by the devil, hath entered into covenant and had familiarity with him in the shape of a wernage, which is a black cat, and had his imps sucking her, and teats or marks found on her, as in by several testimonies may appear, contrary to the peace of our sovereign Lord, the King, His crown and dignity, the laws of God, and this jurisdiction. End quote. So Mary Webster pleads not guilty to the charge, and after all the evidence and testimonies were presented, a Boston jury found her not guilty, but not necessarily innocent of witchcraft, but she was found not guilty of maleficium. They couldn't prove harm done by her witchcraft. So she returns to Hadley, probably much to the dismay of more than a few of her neighbors. And again, this you kind of have to put this in perspective. Imagine if one of your neighbors was a child predator. And say everybody was convinced that this person was a child predator. And somehow they beat the rap through some legal loophole. 
and they walk right back into town as if nothing had happened. I, I imagine the tension around her would be something like that. People aren't just going to ignore a person like that. Quite naturally, there's going to be anger and even more suspicion than before. And most importantly, this person is now a huge target, especially for those who've suddenly happened to stumble upon bad luck. So about a year and a half after Mary Webster's trial, uh, Philip Smith, my ancestor, who was also the associate of the court that brought Mary Webster to trial in the first place, his health rapidly begins to decline. He becomes bedridden, and the source of his illness could not be identified by local physicians. One source labels him as a known hypochondriac, so it could be that the doctor just didn't try all that hard because they knew this guy gets sick all the time and he ends up just recovering and figured this one would just be like all the other times. But Philip Smith doesn't recover. In fact, if the accounts are to be believed, his condition is way beyond the medicine of this world. And this is where things go full horror movie as far as I'm concerned. Reverend Cotton Mather records it in the following way. About the beginning of January, he became to be very valetudinarius, which just means he's concerned about his health. He showed such weakness from and weariness of the world that he knew not, he said, whether he might pray for his continuance here. And such assurance he had of the divine love unto him that in raptures he would cry out, Lord, stay thy hand, it is enough. It is more than thy frail servant can bear. But in the midst of these things, he still uttered a hard suspicion that the ill woman who had threatened him had made impressions with enchantments upon him. While he remained yet of sound mind, he solemnly charged his brother to look well after him. Be sure, said he, to have care of me, for you shall see strange things. There shall be a wonder in Hadley. I shall not be dead when it is thought that I am. He pressed this charge over and over. End quote. So, what the heck does that mean? He's in agony from whatever his afflictions are, and he's having premonitions. And if it's me in today's world with the with today's sensibilities, I would just brush that off as delirium if I'm taking care of somebody and, and they're, you know, talking about how they're going to see strange things in the future and you're going to think I'm dead, but I'm not really dead. Um like I said, <clears throat> I would brush it off as delirium. In fact, Mather goes on to say that he falls, Philip Smith falls in and out of delirium, but even in his unconscious state, he scares the living crap out of just about everybody in the town. Mather continues, He had a speech incessant and voluble beyond all imagination, and this in diverse tones and sundry voices, and as was thought in various languages. He cried out not only of sore pain, but also of sharp pins pricking him, sometimes in his toe, sometimes in his arm, as if there had been hundreds of them. But the people, upon search, never found any more than a one. In his distresses, he exclaimed very much upon the woman aforementioned, naming her and some others, and saying, Do you not see them? There, there, there they stand. End quote. Even today, with all the medical knowledge and all the science, I think there's a lot of us who hear stories like this, or stories of exorcisms, or ghost hauntings, or possessions, and even though doctors might be able to say that it's the mind collapsing in on itself, I think many of us wonder what really is real. Are these people having visions of something beyond? It's, I've thought it to myself a hundred times. Now you go back 300 years or so to a town that, that believes they have a witch living down the street. Seeing Philip Smith pricked by invisible pins and seeing invisible people, I might just pack up and leave town. 
Cotton Mather goes on to describe how people in and around Philip's house who were taking care of him constantly smelled a musty burning smell that couldn't be explained. There were also apparently pots of medicine that would mysteriously be emptied or disappear entirely, depriving Philip of the medicine that he needed. Mather goes on, quote, Several persons that sat by him heard a scratching that seemed to be near his feet, while his feet lay wholly still, nay, were held in the hands of others, and his hands were far off another way. Sometimes fire was seen on the bed, or the covering, and when the beholders began to discourse of it, it would vanish away. Diverse people felt something, often stirring the bed, at some distance from his body. To appearance, the thing that stirred was as big as a cat. Some tried to lay hold of it with their hands, but under the covering, nothing could be found. A discreet and sober woman, resting on the bed's feet, felt as if it were a hand, the thumb and the finger of it, taking her by the side and giving her a pinch, but turning to see what it might be, nothing was to be seen. The doctor, standing by the sick man, and seeing him lie still, he did himself try to lean on the bed's head, but he found the bed to shake so that his head was often knocked against the post. Though he strove to hold it off, and others, upon trying, found the same. Also, the sick man, lying too near the side of the bed, a very strong and stout man, tried to lift him a little further into the bed, but with all his might he could not. Though trying, he could lift a bedstead with a bed and a man lying on it all without any strain to himself at all. End quote. This is an absolute nightmare scenario for me. If I'm there and I'm seeing these things happen, I, I don't know, I'd, I'd be scared out of my mind. And I, you can imagine the townspeople would be too. And so some of them are at their wits end and they come up with an idea that they think might offer some reprieve for Philip Smith. Now what happens next has a few different variations on the details, but the general gist is this. A few young men show up to Mary Webster's home in the middle of the night, probably armed to one degree or another. I know I would be. And at least one of them has a noose. They drag her outside of town and hang her from a tree limb. And like magic, Philip Smith's torments cease, and he's able to sleep peacefully, as do his caretakers, no doubt. The next morning, some of the men go back to retrieve the body of Mary Webster. They cut her down, but there's a problem. She's still alive, and she's rolling around in the snow like it's Night of the Living Dead or something. And out of sheer panic, the men run off for Hadley, leave her behind in the snow, only to find that Philip Smith's afflictions have returned. Only this time, he succumbs to his sickness and he dies. But the nightmare doesn't end there. You may remember early in his sickness, Philip Smith made a prophecy. You shall see strange things. There shall be a wonder in Hadley. I shall not be dead when it is thought I am. Cotton Mather documents the events immediately following Philip Smith's death. Quote, the jury that viewed his corpse found a swelling on one breast which rendered it like a woman's. His privities were wounded or burned. On his backside, besides bruises, there were several pricks or holes, as if done with awls or pins. And after the opinion of all had pronounced him dead, his countenance continued as lively as if it had been alive. His eyes closed as in a slumber, his jaw not falling down. Thus he remained from Saturday morning about sunrise till Sabbath day in the afternoon. When those that took him out of bed found him still warm, though the season was as cold as had almost been known in an age. On the night after Sabbath, his countenance was yet fresh as before, but on Monday morning they found the face extremely tumefied and discolored. T'was black and blue, and fresh blood seemed to run down his cheeks in the hairs. 
The night after he died, a very credible person watching the corpse perceived the bed to move and stir more than once, but by no means could they find out the cause of it. The second night, some that were preparing for the funeral do say that they heard diverse noises in the room where the corpse lay, as though there had been a great removing and clattering of stools and chairs. Upon the whole, it appeared unquestionable that witchcraft had brought a period unto the life of so good a man. End quote. Mather doesn't explain why Philip Smith's body was left in the bed for so long. I maybe that was normal for the time, I'm not sure. But the early stages of decomposition are clearly occurring. The bloating, the blood seeping from the pores and orifices. Even the strange noises might be explained by the building up and then release of gases in the body. But I can't quickly explain away the body mutilation, burnt genitals and puncture wounds, and even with what we know about how bodies decompose in a hypercharged, superstitious community like Hadley, these post-mortem events just fall right in line with the devil's handiwork, don't they? This is where the accounts of Philip Smith and Mary Webster end. We know Mary lived for another few years and apparently died of natural causes. After her acquittal and survived hanging and her alleged victim now six feet under, perhaps the people of Hadley felt there was little to be gained by pursuing her anymore. But there's a problem that we have to address, and it's with the primary source of the story, Cotton Mather. For starters, he was not actually present at any of these events in Hadley, and he was heavily invested in the exposition of witchcraft in New England. And his father had already been accused of being a teller of tall tales for the Angel of Hadley legend, and yet both Cotton and his father were published authority figures in New England in the area of witchcraft. They were not without contemporary critics. Even in those days, the Mathers were blamed for stoking the flames of the Salem Witch Trials. After those trials, almost everybody involved in the executions publicly apologized, but Cotton Mather never did. For the events surrounding my ancestor Philip Smith, Cotton Mather claims to have used primary sources, people who were there, who witnessed the events. But Samuel Gardner Drake, who I've used as a source for, for this story, he had some reservations about Mather's sources on his works in Hadley. He says, quote, it should be remembered that all or nearly all of Mather's accounts came to him at least second-handed and often perhaps through a third or fourth idle head, all lovers of the marvelous, ready at all times, especially in the night, to believe the air full of ill-shapen monsters bearing commission from the devil to enlist followers of whom he might make witches and send them forth to vex and torment mankind. End quote. A good example of Cotton Mather perhaps twisting facts to be in his favor um, was about a woman named Ann Glover. Um, she was a housemaid, and she was accused of afflicting the mother of the children of the home that she lived in. And when Cotton Mather arrived on, arrived on the scene, he investigated her house. Um, there were claims that she could speak in tongues. There were claims that she had little dolls around the house that that she would talk to, and they were thought that there was just something demonic going on in this house. And when she was hung, when she was on the gallows, she actually said that the afflictions would not stop after she she died. And so people thought that was sort of like a curse that she was putting on the, the children. But in reality, she was a Catholic, and Catholics pray to saints. And those little dolls that she made, those were probably crude images of the saints. And the Puritans hated Catholics. And she didn't speak in tongues. She was an Irish Catholic. She spoke Gaelic. That was her primary language. And on the gallows, 
The reason why she didn't think the afflictions would stop after she died was because she wasn't the one doing them. So again, we're at my original question at the beginning of this podcast. You have a story. It's unbelievable. What do you need to believe it? What about our own prejudices? What about Cotton Mather's own prejudices? He definitely believed that story. Whatever happened to Philip Smith scared the daylights out of the people who witnessed it. That that I know for certain. And the accused witch outwitted death, which is creepy and probably didn't help her case. And even though you and I may not believe in witches, and most logical people also would never let somebody's life hang in the balance of spectral evidence, this was reality for the people at the time. This is this was this was their world. These were really real crimes that that somebody could be accused of committing. And it had real consequences. So in researching this stuff, I found a poem that was written about Mary Webster, um, allegedly by one of her descendants, who's pretty famous now. Her name is Margaret Atwood. Um, she wrote A Handmaid's Tale, among other stuff. And the poem she wrote is called Half-Hanged Mary, and it's an homage to Mary Webster. So I thought I'd read a couple lines from it, um, because I think it's a good, appropriate close with an excellent level of creepiness for these events. When they came to harvest my corpse, open your mouth, close your eyes, cut my body from the rope. Surprise, surprise, I was still alive. Tough luck, folks, I know the law. You can't execute me twice for the same thing. How nice. I fell to the clover, breathed it in, and bared my teeth at them in a filthy grin. You can imagine how that went over. Now I only need to look out at them through my sky-blue eyes. They see their own ill will, staring them in the forehead, and turn tail. Before, I was not a witch, but now I am one. I hope you enjoyed that glimpse into the wonderful world of spectral evidence and Puritan superstition. I find that area of history mesmerizing. If you feel this show is worth at least a dollar, I'd love to have that dollar. Each dollar goes towards offsetting the cost of research material and show production, and for those that are already patrons, I can't thank you enough. Another huge way to help me out would be to leave a rating or review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Those reviews and stars really make this podcaster's day. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at stephen.dejulius at gmail.com, or my Twitter handle is at sdejulius, or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And so, until next time, thank you so very much for listening to Written in Blood History. See you later. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.